This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. Today, with Christmas Compilations. My name is Alex Rawls, and 12 Songs is my podcast on Christmas music. Today's episode emerged from an online conversation with Joe Adranya, a pop classicist here in New Orleans who records under the name The Junior League. When we started talking about Christmas music, he brought up a compilation titled A Very Merry Christmas from 1971 that was sold through Grant's department store in uh, Staten Island. I'd never heard of it. But it reminded me of how ubiquitous Christmas compilations sold by businesses once were. Go through any Salvation Army used vinyl vinyl bins, and you'll inevitably run across a few dating back to the 1960s. And the most recent one I have came from True Value Hardware in 1988, and it's volume 23 of their Happy Holiday series. I asked Joe to come in and talk about his collection from Grant's, and collections like them because there's a lot to unpack in them. We talk about how they reflected and shaped ideas about how Christmas should be, and how they worked as consumer goods. Because the Grants collection has been part of Joe's Christmas since the 1970s, we also talked a little about nostalgia and tradition. Since I started 12 Songs to examine all of these connections, this episode is like 12 Songs mashed down into one 45-minute dose. After that conversation, I'm going to talk a little about singer-songwriter Molly Birch and her new Christmas album, the Molly Birch Christmas Album. It's one of my favorite Christmas albums released this year, so I want to take a few minutes with it. But first, this is Joe Adranya of the Junior League. This summer, he released a new album, Adventureland, and we'll start with a track from that so you can hear what else he does. This is Adventureland at Night on 12 Songs. very strong memories about Christmas music growing up. And, but I also recognize that when I talk to a lot of people, they don't, you know, they remember it being a part of the background, which I completely understand. Um, and I suppose probably because I was both record nerd from an early age that what I was listening to, you know, stands out. I remember my mom bought, (laughs) <laughs> there's there's my dog who's talking to people outside that uh i remember that we had uh mitch miller sing along with mitch the christmas collection which is actually one of the first places that must be santa shows up the song that uh, bob dylan did and uh, 
I remember it because I never really understood why we had it. Uh, I don't remember anybody in our family particularly loving singing, huh. but I suppose because mom and dad, mom thought this was a good thing to do during Christmas to sing these songs that we got it. And we did sing along. We, we sang along with Mitch. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember we had an Anne Murray Christmas record and I had no idea why. I didn't know who in the family cared about Anne Murray. Um, but nonetheless, we had one and we listened to it. Um, what were some of the Christmas records that showed up in your family? Well, two of them were both Johnny Mathis records. One was the Merry Christmas Johnny Mathis, which was his first one. And the second one was a 1969 record called Give Me Your Love for Christmas. Uh, both of these records are two of my favorites. And it's funny because... I knew why we had these. My parents were huge Johnny Mathis fans. They loved Johnny Mathis. I remember in the wintertime especially, they loved to, when, when Dow would get off work and they would, they would have a drink together, like a rusty nail or something, and they would, you know, <laughs> and they would listen to Johnny Mathis, and that was like kind of their relaxation time, you know? And at Christmas time, these records, when I would hear Winter Wonderland off of the first Johnny Mathis Merry Christmas album, it was on. It was officially Christmas, and that was very important. And I... You know, I remember as a kid, I didn't like the 1969 one as much, although I liked a lot off of it. This first one was the one, but um, those two records are like the first thing I think of, you know, and I, and they, I, these were like, especially this first one, the Merry Christmas, Johnny Math is the one I'd reach for. And I'd say, because I was like you, I was a record guy. I loved getting 45s every holiday. I got my birthday, Christmas, it was 45s, records, Beatles stuff usually. And so I was very much into picking out, you know, what we would listen to. So my folks were Johnny Mathis fans. And then, you know, of course, we had the other records as well that I'm sure we're going to talk about sure. as time goes on. Right. Um, you know, and the other thing, do you, obviously you have a pretty strong Christmas memory. I have to say, the one Christmas memory, I have two that are really big for me. One was, one year, our babysitter, a woman who babysit us regularly, she gave my she gave my two brothers, my sister and I, all a copy of The Man with All the Toys by the Beach Boys. And I had no idea, even then, like I'm like, I'm probably like seven or eight. And it's and it occurred to me, why did you give all of us four copies of the same record? Or why did you give each a copy of the same record? Well, how was that supposed to work? Yeah. Um but I thankfully knew enough. And my brothers and sister knew enough not to ask that question. We we had manners, mm -hmm. and so we all just like thank you very much. And but nonetheless, of course, that's now a big Christmas record for me. And my uh, my father was in uh, cancer research, and so and he would often after like after dinner and after doing some family time, he'd go downstairs to his study and go and work a little more. And I would my uh, my bedroom was next to his study. So I had to go through through his room to get to the study. And during the Christmas season, he had on the local easy listening station. And so I kind of went through the, you know, went through the late 70s, early 80s with that easy listening station Christmas music. And particularly the a lot of what, you know, a lot of the stuff from that that was big at the time, which some of which we'll, well I think we'll end up hearing, but also I remember... You know, some of it sounding so like some of those records sound so so gloomy, and uh, and things like like Ray Conniff, where I've always I've always seen like these giant banks of vocals by a by sort of a you know a, a vocal group 
end up because there's no front voice. I always find them sort of vaguely haunting, mm-hmm. like you know, like backing vocals in search of a singer, um, and and they're all sort of beautifully faceless, but that also is kind of eerily faceless at the same time. And so I remember, you know, being struck at times by how kind of odd and lonely, even when there were voices there, these records sounded. And uh, which I think is probably part of like what made them connect with me at a point when otherwise I would not have liked Christmas records. Sort of, you know, and I've talked about this before on the show, but I think you know your teenage years are when you're deciding, you know, you're drawing the line between where you, where mom and dad end and you start. Yeah. You know, and music is such a big part of how we draw that line and where we, where we find our tribe and find our people and who's on our side, who's not. And so, like, mom and dad's music, music that the family could like, like Christmas music, at the time, that was largely sort of, that's not my music. But I had to say, you know, that the stuff that would actually seem kind of dark or had weird undercurrents, like, okay, this, I can, I, I, this has, there's room for this in my sort of, uh, you know, in my vaguely, in my slightly rebellious, you know, point. This is a rebellious Christmas music for me, mm-hmm. even if it is Ray Conniff. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard rebellion and Ray Conniff mentioned in the same. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that, though, because I, you know, as a kid, because I liked music that was 10 years before I was cognizant, you know, the Beatles and stuff, I was four or five when I heard the Beatles, and that was the mid 70s resurgence. So um, I never, saw Christmas music as being their music so much. Like that was kind of like, I don't know, it was like a timeout, you know, because my parents didn't understand like the Smiths or or they didn't like that stuff, you know, and that was fine, you know. But Christmas music was, a I I didn't see it like that. I I felt like it was, that was a time where we all liked that and that it was okay. And I think we like different things about it. You talked about the darkness of it. I find in a lot of these arrangements on this Johnny Mathis record, the Percy Face Up, you listen to a song like um, I'll Be Home for Christmas or the Christmas song, the arrangements, those haunting backing vocals, even on this with a main vocal that, you know, ooh, it's like you feel the cold, you feel the loneliness of it. And it's, I, I really am glad you said that because I feel that way with these records too. And I think that, you know, the best Christmas music has that, you know, there because, you know, Christmas is awesome and it's fun, but it's also, it could be a little bit down, you know, because you're also thinking about what was, you know, as opposed to what's coming. Right. I, I don't mean to be a downer about it, but there is that aspect to it, I think. Sure. The, um, we're, I'm going to go to music because you got something I wanted to, I want us to talk about in just a moment, but I was going to pick up that thought. One of the things that's kind of a urban legend or kind of passed around that really is an urban legend is the idea that there's more suicides at Christmas than any other time of the year that's been shown to not be true. Yeah. That it, it might be a sad time and there might be a lot of loneliness and hard feelings during that time, but I think it's actually February. That uh, would make more sense. Yeah. Yeah, because February is truly just, well, not here. Right, you know, right. But <laughs> in the cold of like a New York or something like that, I could see that a little bit more than, you know, here it's party time generally. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, and, and I think that there's a difference between that kind of slight, melancholic vibe and being really, you know, it's just a, it's a temporary, I don't want to say it's a temporary thing, but it is sort of like, you know, and I've, I've, as I've gotten older, I've started to think, well, 
if I'm thinking about these people as I'm listening to this music and it, and it, and it gives me those feelings, just thinking about them, they're still here, you know? So that's the way I kind of rationalize it when I'm listening to this stuff, you know? Sure. Now, you brought a record that had a very specific place in your world. The, uh, uh, I was going to go with your, uh, you had a Christmas Eve record, right? Oh, yes, Percy Faith. Hold on. Let me, yeah, that's absolutely right. And that, it, it, I should was, set the scene here. Joe has brought along a stack of vinyl, which I completely love. I love anybody who brings props, <laughs> brings visual aids, and, uh, and, 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 and say, makes this conversation move. So tell me about the importance of, of this record and what it is. Okay, so this is The Music of Christmas by Percy Faith and his orchestra, which I believe came out in the mid-50s, late-50s. Uh, and this was my, I believe this was my grandfather's favorite Christmas record. And I think that my mother remembers listening to this on Christmas Eve. And then we, of course, listened to it on Christmas Eve. And I know from my parents, they strongly connotate this record with Christmas Eve. And I, as such, I've started to as well. Um, it's funny that I won't play this record very much at all until Christmas Eve. And I don't think they do either. It just has become a thing. Um, but it seems to me like this is... Uh, this record is kind of... It, 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 Christmas Eve was such an important... Eve night, we, we, we'd have a seafood dinner, which was, I guess, a, a, an Italian thing, that Feast of the Seven Fishes or something. I'm not really, I just remember that we got flounder and scallops on, you know, wow. Christmas Eve. That was a big deal. You know, we'd have fried flounder and fried scallops, and this record would be on either during dinner, because it was wonderful to eat with this on. It felt fancy. It felt, this is an event. Right. You know, and it was very special. And now, when I, I like to play this record, when we have Christmas Eve at our house, when my parents come and you know we're all together, it's really nice. And I'm sure this Christmas Eve we'll be listening to it again. Cool. Well, let's go to it for a moment here. This is uh, from the music of Christmas, Percy Faith and his orchestra. So where were you when you uh, when this was a part of your your upgrade? I was thinking about fried fried scallops. Like that's not a New Orleans thing. No, I was on Long Island. Oh, okay, in New York. Yeah, that seems that does not seem like dinner music to me. Uh, <laughs> it's a little too exciting, right? Yeah, exactly. There are more mellow bits of the record. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but any but I think but I the uh, but I think it's really interesting because part of what is. You know, part of what made me want to have this conversation mm -hmm. is when we think about Christmas music, and especially things like this, they feel very much like a part of how people envisioned Christmas, what, what Christmas ought to be like. And that as much as Christmas could be, you know, Christmas, family and kids and kids being kids and, you know, family in, the, in their robes and stuff like that, that at the same time, there was always this, you know, that when you, you realize that there's this whole body of music, Montavani, Percy Faith, 
that are all sort of with the idea that making an elegant sort of faux classical version of Christmas and to suggest that Christmas has an elegance or should be at least at some time, at some point, an elegant thing as well. And it sounds very much like your Christmas dinner, uh, your uh, Christmas Eve dinner was that kind of thing. And, and, and certainly in our family and I, you know, we had our, ours was Christmas day and, but that sense of it, we had to put on the big thing and, uh, you know, and there's historic roots for, for the big meal, uh, that, that really do go back to, you know, go back to, uh, you know, the, the 13, the original colonies. But I think the, you know, that idea, that train, you know, that thought going forward, that there should be this kind of sort of elegant Christmas thing now strikes me as fascinating and particularly at a time when there's sort of so little elegant in in our culture. So a few moments set aside for elegance. Well, you know, and, and I, I think that Christmas Eve was, my parents worked very, very hard to give us a really nice Christmas. We were very, very fortunate. My sister and I, they, you know, getting the seafood. And that wasn't, you know, always cheap, you know, to, to, but it was a special thing. And we didn't necessarily have to be super dressed up at dinner, but mom would have candles and we we always decorated the house and did the tree early. And it was a big, we had my great grandparents out. They always stayed with us. Sometimes my grandmother, you know, so it, they worked very hard to create an atmosphere that was, I mean, gee, it was, it was wonderful. And I think that the music played into that, the, 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 that there was the right record for the right moment. And it wasn't really like thought out like, okay, at eight o'clock, we're going to play this, but right. it does, it, it just kind of worked out that way. And, um, I, I, it's so nice that even now some, you know, 30 something years later that I'm carrying on these traditions with my son, you know, right. uh, but you know, I, I, I do, I do think that, um, it, it was, it's hard to talk about it. it honestly, it's, it's, sometimes it's difficult. It was uh, something special, it, and I think the music plays into the specialness of it, you know. And and there was certain, like Christmas morning, Johnny Mathis again would come back, but Christmas Eve was a little bit more sedate, and right. the music would match that, you know. Right, right. Even though you're super excited and amped up, you know. Sure. I mean, that, in some ways, that makes sense that you would probably the, your parents would probably want something a little bit more sedate at the point when you're pretty much buzzing. They want us to go to bed. So they right. could, you know, so that Santa Claus could come and, you know, yeah. make everything happen. Right, right. <laughs> so you brought an album that we were actually going to end up making kind of the center of today's conversation. Tell me about it. Okay. This is A Very Merry Christmas, Volume 5. It was uh, put out by RCA Special Products. And it was, as it says on the label, prepared exclusively for grants, which was a department store. So this was 1971. So I think my, my mom and dad got this before I was born. And, but I remember this record, and this was another big Christmas record for us. And it was a compilation of different artists. So you had Perry Como, you had Ames, Arthur Fiedler, uh, uh, the, the Norman Luboff Choir, uh, Mario Lanza. And it's funny, because we were talking about this earlier, I cannot listen to these songs from the original records. I have to hear them in this order from this record. It doesn't feel right if Home for the Holidays by Perry Como isn't followed by the Robert Shaw Choral. You know, right. It's it's funny, but it's a great. These compilations are wonderful. Yep. What I, the reason I was fascinated by these, but when you brought that up, and I, you know, I've wanted to talk to you about Christmas music, and I knew you were a Christmas music person, but I was also fascinated because 
this was a thing that for a long time, certainly through the 60s and uh, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, you would have companies putting out these compilations that were at some level sort of packaged as as like Christmas presents almost. Like I literally, I'm literally just leaning away from the mic for a minute <laughs> to pull up uh, one from uh, Firestone from um, 1964 that Firestone presents your Christmas favorites. And it is marked, in, and it is literally green wrapper, uh, green wrapping paper, a red bow in the middle. So it looks like it's a Christmas present. And so cool. It is, uh, and it's with like, it's largely sort of light opera with like Gordon McRae and uh, I can't see their names on it from here. Uh, Martha Wright, uh, oh, oh. Roberta Peters, and the Columbus Boy, Boys Choir. And so it's all big, beautiful vocal versions, but it's the idea is presented as if it's a present and they were budget priced and was, and was pretty common with them like yours is that they would be a compilation. And I, I've got one from as late as I think this is 81. Oh no, this is 88. Wow. Um, one from true value hardware. Uh, and it is volume 23. Wow. Of their happy holidays. And it's a, it's a, an 88 version of that, that it has Loretta Lynn, uh, Chuck Berry, the jets, which is actually the reason I bought it, uh, a, a song titled this Christmas, that is not the Donny Hathaway this Christmas, but it is still a 1988 contemporary funk version of a song called This Christmas. Wow. Um, it has George Strait. It has, the, it has Andrew's sisters, the Trap family singers. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, would, you would never know. Uh, <laughs> it, it has Harry Simone, uh, Brenda Lee. Anyway, and, uh, and Bing Crosby, White Christmas, of course. Mm-hmm. So... But I was fascinated by these things because they were partly such a part of so many people's Christmases that they were essentially Christmas mixtapes before mixtape was in the vocabulary. And it seemed like they understood kind of a basic concept, which which we always bump into. I bump into as a Christmas music fan in that, you know, people basically get grumpy about Christmas music because... You know, they think it's always the same songs. It all sounds the same. And what these things all tried to solve is that rather than listen to a whole album of of Johnny Mathis, if you don't care about Johnny Mathis, Mm -hmm. you get one Johnny Mathis and then you get something else. Right. And that they're sort of designed for the family. In this case, like the true value one that you've got, you know, George Strait and you also have, you have like the Jets for, Mm -hmm. for the kids and uh, you've got, you know, different, you know, you, you have you know, some, you have Von Trapp family covering that, that uh, big, beautiful vocal oriented, you know, gr- here's music for grandma. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of this very clearly designed for the whole family element. Right. Um, as if they're trying to solve the problem of how do you listen to music at Christmas time? And I wonder, you know, looking at the Very Merry Christmas record, and I and I brought another one called Christmas in New York that was another special collector's edition from RCA. Uh, what would appeal to the kids? Because to me, when I was a kid, all this music was basically, it, it didn't sound like, oh, well, this song's for me. It's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But I guess that's what they were thinking, that 
Oh, Holy Night would be for mom and dad. Rudolph would be for the kids. And, you know, then the a choir would be for grandma or something. But they all felt for me. It's like right. I didn't feel like... I didn't have that like feeling, but maybe I suppose that's that's what they were thinking because you look at this and you have home for the holidays and oh little town of Bethlehem, but then Frosty the Snowman. So surely they were trying to appeal to every everybody who would be around the house at Christmas, right? And and I would imagine that in the minds of the people who were putting this together, that anything with Fr- with Frosty or Santa would have had even Christmas donkey, even Ed Ames mm-hmm. ballad of a Christmas of the Christmas donkey. That by virtue of being focused, I mean, there's a belief that Christmas music was ain't, was largely for children. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, the first version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town is 1936, and I'm blanking on who did the first version. Um, Come on, internet work, work. I love the liner notes of these as well. When you look at the liner notes of these records, they they even try to describe for you what you should be feeling at Christmas. Oh, that's in great. the written word as opposed in addition to the music. So it's almost like a guide. <laughs> Eddie Cantor. Eddie Cantor. Okay. So Eddie Eddie Cantor was did the first version, and his uh, and he didn't want to do it when the songwriters came to him with the song because he thought uh, he thought Christmas music was for kids. Huh. And. He ended up his uh, his wife convinced him to sing it, and he did the first version of it was was uh, during the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade uh, in 1936, and the song blew up. And it did like in 36, the version of blowing up was uh, having sheet music just sell out the door, and it sold that sheet music for uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town sold insanely. Wow, and. Um, but again, he he didn't want to do it because he didn't. He thought that kids that Christmas music songs about Santa, songs about Frosty, were were for kids. Wow! And uh, so, uh, now they've realized. And I, and and at that point, that kind of the process of the way Americans celebrated Christmas from about the mid mid eighteen hundreds on really was a slow process of moving Christmas towards children. Mm. Um, you know, kind of the whole historic idea of giving from the, the from the haves to the have-nots originally was giving that was the wealthy in town giving food, drink, etc. to the to the the less well-off, and the people who essentially had money and really didn't want to share it with the rabble mm. sort of refocused this idea of uh, of giving from the haves to the have-nots as inside the family mm. the haves and the have-nots and move and making the children the have-nots in that and that construction and so it became a process of how do you give stuff to them right and the and so that was part of a big process of christmas being refocused uh, on children but you know it's it's funny like i again with, with the music that certainly the music that i grew up listening to i didn't see it as being particularly focused toward me even though i loved it all i didn't see it as being just like whereas you know the stuff you watched on television clearly was for children the charlie brown christmas special and the you know the rankin bass stuff sure that was all but christmas music again in my mind it was something where everybody came together and it was for all of us equally i didn't see it uh, the way i saw listening to other music you know like my my parents were never gonna sit down listen to the smiths they didn't you know or right whereas this was we all liked it equally we all identified with it the same way and it was a bonding thing 
rather than, you know, being specifically for me or my sister, you know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start here with, um, cause I think there's some, I think we can sort of pick up off of this song. This is the first song we're going to, I'm going to go with your idea here of you believe in these songs in this sequence. I can't go all the way through with it. We'll be here for another, uh, another hour and a half if we go all the way through the album. But I do, we're going to go ahead and start where the album starts with uh, Home for the Holidays by Perry Como. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays Cause no matter how far away you When you pine for the sunshine of a friendly gaze For the holidays you can't beat home, sweet home I met a man who lives in Tennessee He was heading for Pennsylvania and some homemade pumpkin pie From Pennsylvania folks are traveling Down to Dixie's sunny shore From Atlantic to Pacific Gee, the traffic is terrific Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays Cause no matter how far away you roam If you want to be happy in a million ways For the holidays you can't beat home sweet What, what about that do you love? That, that song? Yeah. I love his voice. Yeah. I love the way he sings. And I love the idea of being home for the holidays, you know, being with the people you want to be with and carrying on the traditions that you carry on. And I love the idea of pumpkin pie and apple pie and the whole, you know, the, the being together, having the right food, having the right moment. And, you know, for those of us who are able to have that, we're very, very fortunate. And that song reminds me of how fortunate I feel when I'm able to, you know, indulge myself and all that yeah you know one thing i was thinking about and to pick up the question that we were we've kind of been playing about we're playing with which is how do you locate yourself and music that might have been aimed for you in in this compilation and part of it i think is obviously subject matter but also one of the tricks i think we run into is remembering who these people were and that by the time say you heard this in the early 70s mm-hmm. And so by that point, Perry Como was about, was probably about 20 years into a career. And that by that point, you know, he was very clearly kind of, you know, his style was adult, his, per, you know, and it was, had not his, his style, his performance had nothing whatsoever to do with rock and roll at the moment, with youth culture at the moment. Mm-hmm. And if memory serves, I think when he started, that that was, you know, his audience would have been younger. Yeah. That, you know, at, uh, I mean, it wasn't pop, it wasn't rock and roll, and it wasn't necessarily pop charts, but it was still that, you know, he didn't start off singing, singing for 40-year-olds. Right. 
that uh, and it's more a matter of just sort of you know as happens naturally with so many musicians, their their audience ages with them, and to a great degree their celebrity ages with them, and uh, and the one thing we you know I think we lose track of and the end is and I think it's a little different today was that there was a time certainly I think at this stage where there was an assumption that the music that was important that spoke to that spoke to young people at one point or the music that was important at one point remains important mm -hmm. and so Perry so there was kind of an assumption that Perry Como remained relevant which as young people that was not our relationship to Perry Como no not at all and and, and honestly some of these people you know, Johnny Mathis, I knew Johnny Mathis' music because I said earlier my parents listened to him around the house and I became a fan through them. But people like Perry Como, I've got to be honest, I, I associate him with Christmas because I, I'm fairly ignorant of anything else he's done. I've never bothered to really go investigate the Perry Como discography. He is Christmas to me. Like, you know, um, same thing with... I would say somebody like Eddie Arnold or, you know, they are Christmas or even Arthur Fiedler. That is mm -hmm. Christmas. I, I don't think about them, anything else they did. Whereas Andy Williams, I am familiar with, you know, can't get loose to losing you. You know, I know that, but most of these people identify with as Christmas artists. I don't right. think about them as be as anything else. So they're kind of, uh, uh, they're timeless to me. Sure. I don't, you know, that's so. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm going to cheat. I, I'm going to break. I told you we we're going to go in sequence, but mm -hmm. I'm going to jump sequence because I realize we're going to someplace I think is interesting. Okay. Because when I was preparing for this, one of the songs on this is Ed Ames' uh, Ballad of the Christmas Donkey. And anybody, and anybody, anybody under 45 or so listening now has to spend a lot of time sort of in TV's back channels to even know who Ed Ames is. Right. Uh, that Ed Ames... I best knew Ed Ames from watching reruns of Daniel Boone, mm. where he played Mingo. He played an Indian. Okay. Um, at uh, and be, and you and you, if you know Ed Ames today, you know Ed Ames. Probably the one thing that's that has lived on is a blooper from from the late '60s of Ed Ames on the Tonight Show, where because he was on Daniel Boone and an Indian. He was on a. He was going to demonstrate throwing a tomahawk with Johnny Carson. Mm. Set up. They had set up a uh, piece of plywood with the paint with the outline of a guy on it. Ed Ames takes the tomahawk, throws it, and squares the guy. Oh, hits the uh, hits the, hits the hits the drawing of a guy right between the legs. Wow. And so, and it becomes like you know, and it's famous because Johnny Carson started, you know, of course, like breaks up laughing uh, and starts wisecracking. And so you can go online. I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. And so these are my references to Ed Ames. Guy on a, sh guy on a show I barely watched. Mm -hmm. Guy on Tonight Show who squared a, uh, an outline of a guy with a tomahawk. And so what I had to go back and see was, was this a case where a guy where where a guy who had been famous for being on TV then was asked to make a recording mm -hmm. or did Ed Ames have a career before Daniel Boone that I just didn't know about right and the answer is sort of yes on in both counts 
that he actually started off as a singer, and he sang in a group, the Ames Brothers, with his brothers, starting in, I want to say, the late 40s? I gotta, I'm not going to Google. I'm not going to go Googling twice in one show. <laughs> uh, if I'm wrong, it's either late 40s or late 50s, but I'm not going to go refine out to figure out, figure out which the answer is. So he already did have a history as a singer. Wow. Um, and it was actually kind of because of his... You know, because of because of his career as a singer, that people were aware of him at all, and saw that he had had high, had chiseled, broad cheekbones, and was slightly olive skinned, and so was perceived as somebody who could play in play Native American, mm. as opposed to a Native American. Right. But that's that's <laughs> nineteen that's, that's twenty nineteen talking to 1964. That's so, amazing that you say that, though, because honestly, he's the guy that sang the Ballad of the Christmas Donkey to me. That's all I know of him. Right. You know, and I think it's fascinating, everything I'm learning today, because <laughs> I, he, he is, he's the guy on the very Merry Christmas album, right. Volume 5. That's it. Yeah. You know? Oh, well, let's hear that then, and we'll come back to uh, more. Since we've got this far, let's go ahead to the Ballad of the Christmas Donkey. Donkey way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am so glad that just happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It may it warms you inside to know a donkey can smile in that way. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That was great. Oh, that's part of what I love the, the the complete sincerity with which he delivered that line. Yeah, it's like that's, that's what I love about these singers. Actually, I admire about all singers when you have a mo- have a line that you know. You have to know, it's like, what on earth am I doing here right. and with this line, but still able to power through and and uh, deliver it like it really matters. I love and you, that. the listener, will take it and totally. I, I was, I'll never be critical of that. I don't. I'm just like, nope, that's fantastic, yep. and it, it totally works. A lot of these songs that we love, these older Christmas songs, I think a lot of these people because they were actors or they did have stage experience, they bring like Mickey Dolenz does to Monkey songs. I know I'm like kind of they bring an actor quality to their delivery and it really is very effective and it, it sticks with us. You know, we can visualize, we can feel it, you know? Yeah. And I, and I also suspect it was probably at some level easier to plow through 
because there was less of a sense in a pre-rock and roll era that the words coming out of your mouth reflected your thoughts and reflected you. Right. That there was a sense at which for Ed Ames, this was a dramatic performance. That it was singing the you know that he was presenting you this these thoughts, these words, and there's no assumption anywhere in there. And there's there's no hint or request for you to think this is Ed speaking straight to you from his heart. You mean he didn't see the donkey smile on his donkey way at him? No, that's <laughs> I could have sworn yeah, it was yeah. true. Uh, uh, no, I think you're right. I, and and I, 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 I kind of wish it was still a little bit like that sometimes, you know, because I feel like everybody's looking for, well, you know, what part of your soul are you exposing to us today? And it's like, right. you know, sometimes uh, it's just good to have a good lyric and a good, it, you can feel it and deliver it with passion and you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, but doesn't, you don't have to like, it's not a confessional every time you sing a song. You right, know? right. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Uh, how that performance happens. Now, one of the things you told me, you were like, "This the there are some pretty beautiful liner notes mm. on the back of." Uh, do you want to give us a quick read? Oh yeah, some highlights. Well, there, there's some here. Here's Christmas is the season of love, and that's great. And it talks about genuine warmth and affection. Seems so natural. Fans are remembered. Christmas feels good. <laughs> and and, and it, well, does it? And 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 then at the end, this is great. And, it, and we were talking about this. It, and this combination, they're talking about the referring to the songs. And this combination brings a fresh quality to these familiar songs of Christmas that they thought, oh yeah, we're really going to present. This is really going to shake it up for you, having Perry Como and Harry Belafonte on the same compilation. It's really going to take these songs that you're familiar with and really you're going to be like, oh, wow, I've just never experienced it in this way, in that kind of mix, either in the mixtape way or maybe they figure that someone who owned a John Gary record or something, if there was a John Gary record, didn't own a Mary Alonzo record or a Harry Belafonte record. Yeah. I wonder what they meant by that. You know, See, I, I think that's, I, I found those liner notes really interesting because, again, I think it's part of, it's part of like the construction of Christmas. That it is telling us sort of here's what Christmas is. Christmas is love. Mm. Christmas is this. And Christmas is the time to get together. So in case it wasn't something you already thought, that you basically have here a consumer good that's kind of reminding you, here's how you consume it. Here's why you consume it. Mm. And sort of here's how, with the hint being, here's how other people do Christmas Shouldn't you do Christmas that way? Yeah. Um, but I do think thinking about this collection, and I'm gonna you can do the liner note, you can kind of give me the list in a moment of who's on it. Mm. But I was thinking while going through it that this actually probably this list probably didn't happen very often. There is something a little fresh in this. So for instance, I say so you have on side one, you have Perry Como, then the Robert Shaw Coral, uh, Ed Ames. Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops, John Gary and Eddie Arnold. Inside two, you have Henry Mancini, Harry, Bel Harry Belafonte, Mary Alonza, Norman Luboff Choir, and then Perry Como to wrap it all up, it, which yeah. I think is interesting that he's on there yeah. twice. Yeah, and I was thinking, though, like at that point, that Harry Belafonte would have still been a slightly exotic voice. He is he's now has, is a part of American culture, right. but, he's, but he is at this point sort of a more progressive voice in American culture. Mm -hmm. And although his music isn't as obviously uh, derived, for, uh, derived from, uh, from uh, Calypso and from Caribbean music, it's still a part of, this, the, of, that, of uh, that voice. It's still in there. Um, he does, he does uh, 
I'm going to go back to Harry Belafonte. I am going to completely oh, screw yeah, with this. It's interesting what song he does as well. Yep. You know, because Christmas is coming, please put a penny in the old man's hat. Even the message within his song is more pro- progressive, reminding you, hey, you know, take care of your fellow man. And, and it, it's a folk song. Mm. Um, and, uh, but that, Eddie, is, Harriet Belafonte probably didn't often show up on the same album as Perry Como or Robert Shaw, uh, Coral, and, uh, and also Eddie Arnold, that I actually don't have, I mean, Eddie Arnold did a number of Christmas records and a few of which are pretty great. This is not one of my favorites, but we'll go with it. Uh, it's a version of Santa Claus is coming to town. Uh, but again, going into country music. Uh, world that wouldn't necessarily have happened yeah that i think that you know that so there is a level at which something that now we look at it and probably even like even at the time you looked at it in the 70s it didn't necessarily see what was fresh because eddie arnold's version doesn't have a lot of the fingerprints of country mm. um and you know and uh, belafonte has sounded uh more exotic mm-hmm. um but nonetheless, there are a lot, probably a lot of people for whom this was their first times hearing Eddie Arnold or, uh, or Harry Belafonte. So uh, anyway, let's go ahead and pick up that Harry Belafonte since we've been talking about it. This is Christmas is Coming. haven't got a penny, a penny will do. If you haven't got a penny, then God bless you. Christmas is coming, goose is getting fat. Christmas is coming in the old Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. Please put a penny in the old man's hat. If you haven't got a penny, a penny will do. If you haven't got a penny, then God bless you. Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. Please put a penny in the old man's hat. If you haven't got a penny, a penny will do. If you haven't got a penny, then God bless you. Yeah, see, that would have been thought of as being for kids. That actually was a... Uh, I'm just looking here, liner looking here on uh, online, and that was I remembered that as a folk song, but it was actually often thought of as just as a as a, identified as a nursery rhyme, and uh, and it was intended to be sung as a round, huh. and I just found like a reference to Kingston Trio doing it under the title "Around About Christmas." Oh wow! So anyway, but uh, I mean that sounds really different. That that does sound like a different world from Perry Como. Uh, or from you know Percy Faith isn't on this. Right. This is like a whole different different musical world and uh, a different musical tradition. Oh yeah, and, I, and again, when you're a kid, some of this like a hip penny. I what, what do you? 
I had a half penny, I assume, right. is what he had. Yeah. But I, 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 I remember when I was really, really little, I was like, a hip penny. I was like, is he saying, I don't know if he was saying hiccup or what was going on. I was like five. And I'm like, what is he saying? This is so, what, what does this mean? You know, it was really cool. Interesting, different. Yeah. So I, I was fascinated. So you had, to, so you always heard these songs in sequence. Mm. Um, did you relate to them equally? Mm, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. I, I, I think that at the time, yes, because it, I, I, it was the record, the whole thing. It was the, you know, now I still want to hear it as the record, but there are certain songs I like more than others. Like I love Home for the Holidays. I love The Ballad of the Christmas Donkey. Uh, I love uh, the Henry Mancini stuff. Uh, but I didn't have favorites off of these records i had favorite records so i wanted to hear this or i wanted to hear like even we were talking about the johnny mathis earlier when i was a kid i would be okay with mom and dad wanting to play give me your love for christmas but i really wanted to hear the merry christmas johnny mathis right you know? because the give me love give me your love for christmas was a bit more adult you know as right. a kid i just didn't you know it didn't sound as christmasy to me right yeah that i think is one of the things that's interesting is you know that idea of what sounds like christmas and I mean, and obviously, part of it is, you know, part of it's as simple as sleigh bells. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of it is just a matter of arrangements. And that's some of the things that we've talked about uh, in in uh, on the you know this season. Or I've talked recently with oh Joel Dinnerstein from uh, from Tulane University. We were talking last episode about Charlie Brown Christmas, mm. and he was talking about the about and Vince Guaraldi. The uh, the right hand piano figure in uh, skating, mm. and how for him that was the sound of snowfall, and so the song just sort of automatically sounded wintry. And I and I wonder if you know, and at some level it, it can be a musical thing, but I also wonder if at some level what sounds like Christmas to us is just a function of what we listen to when, and that you know things like things like some of these things sound like Christmas. Because we heard them at Christmas, right? Like, like <clears throat> I think that for me, it's funny that you mention that because when I hear those background vocals, the we were talking earlier about the Percy Faith, how he used a lot of those words. Like, that to me is very Christmassy. It sounds like the wind in winter where I grew up, you know. And 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 then with with jazz, it's funny you mentioned jazz music like that Garaldi type stuff. When I hear that now, I think of being very fancy, like dressed up and being at like a fancy bar or out to like I imagine this in my head and it's winter and you're at a restaurant and you're you're kind of classy because there's jazz music playing at Christmas time. Like to me, that always kind of it's weird. Yeah. Even though Johnny, uh, excuse me, Charlie Brown doesn't have that connotation for me, but that music does. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I don't really often do that. You know? Right, right. Sure. I still in my head think, ooh, that's fancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a part of it. I mean, jazz is sort of the, uh, an important part of that Charlie Brown Christmas uh, special. Mm. I mean, just even down to like the design of the backgrounds and the set and the settings Charlie Brown walks through that how often you, if you look at those, those look like jazz album covers mm -hmm. from the late fifties and early sixties. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, um, you talked about backing about voices and the one, the effect, the one, the one where I get that kind of that, the, Ooh, you know the the as just sort of this haunting voice is. The, have you heard the Jackie Gleason Christmas albums? No, the Jackie Gleason whole Jackie Gleason Christmas whole Jackie Gleason of catalog mm. is 
the is fascinating to me because I have yet to be able to ever know what ja- what Jackie Gleason ever did aside from put his name on them. <laughs> uh, I'm not aware of him playing any instrument on them. I'm and that the ones I the records I have actually sometimes credit other arrangers. He certainly doesn't write anything on them. Yeah. Um, but one thing that's so beautiful about them, and there's a there's a, a Christmas record, and it is so slow, and that you have these, ooh, you know, do just ooing the cooing the melodies, yeah, really slowly, and they're so breathy that you really it almost sounds like the wind might be just be blowing, right? Uh, and it's like, oh, the wind is no, that's not the wind. That's that's the melody. Yeah. And uh, they are, they're the loneliest, most 3 a.m. records in, uh, I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, they are the Christmas record where you, you know, Christmas records that when they're on, you hide the gun. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and the, when it's, win- uh, uh, you know, being from New York, it, it was so cold usually around Christmas. And you had those clear nights where the moon was out and you, the stars, and you, you would have the wind because I lived near the, the water. And, it, you really did when you heard that. For me, I felt it. I knew what that feeling was. It was so identifable, you know. And, right. And and where even if you open a door for a sec to let somebody in, you're like, ooh, all right, close the door. <laughs> right. Right. Called. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back here to the record. Trying. Uh, let's let's go back to the Robert Shaw Chorale because mm-hmm. we've been working around it. It actually is the second song, and so when I promised you I'd go in order, this should have gone a long time ago. <laughs> But it seems like we've found other directions to move that seem productive. So this is one, I have to say, I had not heard this one before. Um, let's go to it, and then we can talk about it some. So Robert, uh, Little Town of Bethlehem, Robert Shaw Corral with Robert Arnold. Okay, so when that song started, you looked like you got jolted with electricity. 
<laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> this isn't right. <laughs> yeah. So that is not the version you know. No. So so here's part of what happened with everything. I mean, obviously, like I got Joe sent me the list of uh, of songs and I downloaded the songs. And I, and one of the things that's interesting that I found fascinating about these records is that if you think about them as commercial enterprises, that you know the company grants true value firestone whoever that you know they had to go obviously and get rights to these songs mm -hmm. and it's usually pretty clear that there are two or three songs that they spent money on mm -hmm. you're going to have to spend more money if you wanted white christmas and so they spend a few spend a few bucks on a few of the christmas favorites and then they'll sort of fill it out with a few lesser songs. And I can't guess in 1971 what which of those would have been the ones that were better known. You probably paid more for Perry Como because if you put two Perry Como songs on, you figure he's going to sell your record. Yeah. Um, Henry Mancini. I would Mancini, imagine. I'd imagine, would have cost money. Arthur Fiedler. Probably. Yeah, I'd imagine. Things like I, I would imagine that some of them, like an Eddie Arnold and Harry Belafonte, would have cost less. Mm. Um, but also, one of the things that's worth remembering, and I, I ran across this on the True Value collection, is that in a lot of cases, if people had, had hits or had popular Christmas songs, they would go back to them another two or three times. Mm. Uh, and like there's, there's at least two versions of Bing singing White Christmas. I think, I mean, the first one's 42, and I think there's another one from 47. Mm. Um, and like I was looking at this True Value collection, and there's a version of um, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by uh, Brenda Lee that I hadn't heard before. Really? And I would imagine that that was a, that in, in some way this happened because it's a way to get that song at a budget is to buy, is to buy rights to the B version. Mm, take two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To the non-definitive version. And so it's one of the sort of the oddities of Christmas music is that there are multiple versions floating around often by the same artist. And uh, and again, that's a function that in the rock and roll era, we are less, con that, that, that seems hokey. And mm. you are way less likely to do that because again, it seems like, you know, part because so much because rock and roll really did i mean post beatles you know post beatles and stones mm. we do bring the assumption beatles stones dylan we do bring the assumption that at some level the music connects to them and the music is an expression of them their personality their you know their point of view and you don't want to seem like the guy so grasping that uh, and so money hungry that if it's sold once i'll make a second version so i can sell it twice right but that was really traditional yeah uh i've got that i had at one point when i was working on uh the oxford american their louisiana music issue that we had uh on the cd we had bonton roulet by clarence garlow uh the first song to use the word zydeco in the mm. song and garlow we actually had to be careful because there were two versions of Bonton Roulet because the first version sold well enough that he cut a second version. And then he did a third version that was like Mr. Bonton. Uh, and, um, but over time, because they were all sort of on, they were small labels that they traveled around and names got moved around. And so you couldn't always be sure that the, whatever, whatever you found under the name Bonton Roulet really was Bonton Roulet. Right. Uh, and not one of the sort of the subsequent versions. So there's a proud tradition of, of 
if the if it, if it hit once, hit it again. Um, but it's a tradition that we're not very connected to anymore. Right. And I'm not even sure that with with some of the recordings that were done in the 60s, let's say, that there was a difference between mono and stereo versions, different mixes and stuff like that. I haven't even delved into that, but that would be interesting to me to know if there was like a, you know, if the mono versions of some of these recordings were very different, the mixes, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't even know if they're available, really, you know. They probably didn't save a lot of that stuff. I can't imagine yeah. that... Uh, I, you know, I think that the I think that again, I think that when it, you know, we always deal with the ways in which you know, you know, Beatles, Stones, Dylan changed changed the music world, and one of which is again changing that relationship to the idea that music is art. Mm. I think that a lot of these you know musicians at the time thought about their music as being as being artful and themselves as being you know artists, but the idea that you needed to be be finicky about about you know, all your work and that it you know it needs to be exist in two formats and the formats all need to be saved. I think that's a whole level of sort of, of consciousness that really wasn't a part of how these artists thought. And the idea of the thing about how you own your work. Mm. I mean I, I, when I interviewed uh, Johnny Mathis a few years ago, uh, which I put up on uh, put up on uh, my on uh, 12 songs last season. That when I interviewed him, it was very clear. He saw himself, he was very proud of his work and he really loved the work he, uh, that we talked about, his first Christmas records. Um, but it was very much, he was a, he, it wasn't like he was the artiste. He was the singer and the session was arranged around him. Mm-hmm. But like Don Costa was the, was the arranger on one of them and Don Costa was very clearly driving the, uh, driving the train mm. and I believe Percy Faith I believe produced one and again it was very much Percy Faith's project and he was this in that Mathis was the singer but it wasn't like Mathis was the artist and everything revolved around him right and that whatever you know and that masters would re- would revert to him and you know all of that that's just not the consciousness of that era he was another instrument exactly right yeah, yeah. And that Percy Faith or whoever Don Costa could manipulate to their liking. And it's funny, though. I wonder, and I've got to go back and look at that interview again that you did with Johnny Mathis. And and maybe you remember if he said anything about this. But I wonder, you know, he must, maybe if he he thinks about it, he must, really must blow his mind that he's such a part of people's. I think you did talk about that in the interview that he, you know, it must feel so good to know that, wow, it's almost like part of the family, you know, that. You know, there's mom, dad, sister, brother, and Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's quite nice. You know, I'm sure that 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 must feel really good to be such an ingrained part of people's uh, experience with something so meaningful. You know, yeah, that I think that was really that was really important. I mean, it's weird. Family was a part of how he thought about Christmas music to start with. He was thinking about songs his mom and dad could like, and trying to make a record that his parents would like. Um, and so, you know, family was kind of coded in. But yeah, one thing we did talk about is that how sort of, you know, gratifying it is to realize that something you made became, you know, became such a part of the culture and so much a part of people's lives. And, you know, and, and that's been one of the interesting things that I've talked to with a number of people is just how Christmas music does so thoroughly integrate itself into people's lives. Like, you know, last season I talked with Robert Earl Keane, who made Welcome to the Family. Mm-hmm. 
And he said that that song has become so meaningful to, to, to some people that the only time some people will see him is around Christmas time when he will be performing that song. Hmm. And that they may love him and they may love the rest of his stuff, but if they're not going to go see him in July if it doesn't involve Welcome to the Family, and he doesn't play it then. And the last episode I did was with a... Um, it was with a it was with a a group from Nashville called the Ornaments, uh, and that they do every they get together just at Christmas time, and they play a Charlie Brown Christmas mm-hmm. end to end, and uh, they've been doing it for fourteen years now, and again they found that they have people who have uh, you know who have come for years and it's now a part of their part of their Christmas, yeah. and that there are people who first started coming. Uh, who now have kids and who now bring their kids when they come to this. And so I think that's really kind of a powerful part of this, of this music, you know, as kind of your story says, like there's, there was none of this that was right in your wheelhouse, but you know, I mean, you are, you're a rock and roll guy, you are a pop guy mm-hmm. and, um, that, but that nonetheless, this stuff kind of cuts around or cuts through all defenses and gets like right, it gets to you kind of because of how it lives in your life. And I honestly, because I heard this stuff before I heard something like say Pet Sounds, Pet Sounds is like a Christmas record that isn't a Christmas record. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I think that I was, you know, for a lot of people, they probably really liked Pet Sounds because I think in a way it might've reminded them of seasonal music, you know, and so, so for some people, not all, but I think there is, you know, maybe it's the sleigh bells, maybe it's the, but it, to me, it, it has that similar kind of, even though Pet Sounds is another record where I can only listen to it from May until early September. Then I, after Labor Day, I won't listen wow. to it. Wow. It's a summer record, you know, but uh, it's funny. You, you, I, I wonder if for some of these people, unlike Johnny Mathis, they were like Krusty the Clown. They were sitting in the studio smoking cigarettes going, ah, let's do this song. And they, they probably don't even remember. Like if you went up to like, if I don't even know, probably most of these people are have passed away perhaps, but like they, I did a Christmas song. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Did I get paid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what let's do to finish. As much as I would, that, as much as I'd like to do Eddie Arnold, that I feel like that's, it's not that interesting a version. And let's go with Henry Mancini to wrap it up. Because I think that taps into, I think, one of the things we've been dealing with here. That, um, And I also, I got to say, I didn't know this one before hearing it for, uh, as well. And um, we'll go with it, and then we will come back and talk a little more. There must have been some magic in that old silk hat they found. For when they placed it on his head, he began to dance around. Frosty the snowman was a jolly happy soul. With a corncob pipe and a button nose and two eyes made out of coal. Frosty the snowman Snowman had to hurry on his way, but he waved goodbye. 
What a great transition. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. I got to say, that's that's awesome. It really is. <laughs> it sounds great. You know, they're playing so... I mean, the playing's wonderful. The arrangement's wonderful. The, the singing's great. Everything's great. It's it's, it's so good. I, I, I have to say, the, the singing I could... I, I The singing for me was Mox Next. I could zone out on it. But what fascinated me was listening to Mancini's piano in there. Mm. And it is so gestural. And it's just like periodically, just like little flourishes on the right hand that like, what are you doing? Why are you there? But it's almost like with so many, so much of it is like between that and the bells at the front, Mm -hmm. again, had that sort of, you know, sort of snowy element that there was this twinkle. Yeah. That kind of that that's hardwired into that, that arrangement and that performance. Uh, That was awesome. Um, It's it's like tinsel, you know, it's just kind of, that sparkly bit using that word, it, it, it just kind of, and I was telling you when we were listening to the song, I honestly, I know it's, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but some of these songs, I get so happy hearing them. They're so exciting to me that I get almost like goosebumps. It's like, Oh, there's, it's so good. You know? Yeah. The, I want you to read for me a passage here that, that we've been talking about like, why, why does this work? What was, what was their idea? And, um, and which and kind of this is the idea behind all these compilations. Um, and so, why don't you go ahead and give us this? Because they actually we started talking without without finishing to read uh, this, and so they could have shortened up this whole conversation, this whole episode, uh, if we just would have read this first. But go ahead, Joe. Well, it, 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 first of all, they spend a lot of time telling you how you should feel at Christmas, what right. what you should be feeling, and uh, they even say for Christmas is a family time, a time for being the ones that you love, you know, and they're they're basically telling. Home for Christmas is important. Christmas is so many things, so many good things. Right. And then it has a whole paragraph where it tells you why they think that this collection uh, works. In this album, you will hear some of the most beloved of Christmas songs and hymns. Perry Como singing Home for the Holidays will surely put you in the right mood. Henry Mancini brings to life the delightful zest of Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The true innocence of the season is captured in Ed Ames' The Ballad of the Christmas Donkey, as in The Little Drummer Boy by the Norman Luboff Choir. The beautiful sacred songs of the season are here too. John Gary's rendition of Sweet Little Jesus Boy and the overpowering O Holy Night by Mario Lanza and more, much more. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, the part of what's interesting here, and we kind of zip through it, but with, uh, you're caught up in the Robert Shaw chorale and the, uh, and it being a different version, but it is a thing that one of the, one of the important things of this period was a reminder that like all these versions uh, all these compilations do have a certain number of spiritual songs mm. that because there was again it was kind of as a part of the construction of Christmas was the was a reminder this is you know we got we got to drive home the idea this is a you know remind remember this is a Christian holiday right and so the songs had they you know, always kind of make sure that they give you a couple of those songs mm-hmm. and um, and there's no question that even though Mancini was clearly you know, an, an artist aimed at a, working aimed at adults. You can hear in that arrangement. I mean, first of all, he's singing Frosty and Rudolph is going to means going to be aimed at kids, and you can hear in the playfulness. Like what I hear in that is adults 
playing what they think kids will like. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and kids, kids, not like teenagers. What will what will an eight year what will make an eight year old happy? When you called it before, the bells at the very beginning. I think that was a clear like, all right, kids, come around. You know, you hear those oh, bells, you know it's Christmas. That's it. You know, here we go. You know, and uh, it, it does. It is, it, there is a, a happy bounciness to it. You know, and kids have that bounciness. There, it, it, it really. I think it's. It, the, the bells really nail it. Yeah, that's very cool. I didn't, I didn't I didn't think about it in those terms, but you're right. So, well, Joe Adranya, this has been great. I really appreciated this. That that you know, it's really easy to have these conversations about songs about music, and because obviously that's you know it's so important. But at some level, the artifacts themselves of Christmas really do kind of still they matter. Yes, and. Uh, you know, as time passes, you know, some of the artifacts, the artifacts that matter change mm-hmm. or they, you know, I had that, uh, my, my mom, my parents got us Christmas ornaments every year. So we would have ornaments for our tree when we were older. Yeah. And when I finally got, or the ornament, my parents gave me one year, gave me my, the ornaments, brought them here. We had second, like second year putting up the tree. And I'm not sure what happened, but the tree went over oh, and wow. like took out three quarters of them. Oh, man. And, and it was about three, about five minutes of like, well, shit. <laughs> but the nice, but, uh, you know, and so at some level there's like, okay, there's some pieces, some, some artifacts of Christmas that I'm not that precious about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and since then we now have, you know, we, we have, you know, rebuilt and, Along the way, we like built them around the kids, around our daughter and yeah. each other. And so we now have our own very full set of Christmas ornaments. So those pieces aren't quite as precious as they once were, but the artifacts are a part of it. And the Christmas records are, and I love the way these Christmas records, Christmas albums, and particularly these Christmas compilation albums, you can the way you can look at them and you really can see how, you know, how businesses. Yeah tried to construct and tried to help shape Christmas practice. And, and with the imagery on the records, you know, the, the, the how to light the tree, what the kids should look like, they should be in pajamas, and, you know, how it should look, the whole thing. Yeah. Even the liner notes, giving us directions, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I do have to, I'm going to want you to scan that uh, album cover for me and oh, pass absolutely. it over, because the cover is great. The cover is both, it's a beautiful cover. Mm-hmm. It's got sort of, it's got, of its moment typography where the title of very merry christmas is um and it's got a kid looking up the uh, up the chimney looking for santa but the fire's lit (laughs) 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 what mom and dad are letting their child lean into the fireplace to look up with a lit fire and look for santa no kidding And and the, and, the, and then I'm lo- I'm noticing the tree. I never noticed it when I was a kid. But the tree dangerously close to the fireplace. That's a hazard. Absolutely. You know? um, but I have to say though, the the, the records, it, it, I, I'm I'm really thankful my parents had these records and they gave them to me and they you know it I. And I can share these with my son now. Which, by the way, I do want to mention my son Joey. His favorite Christmas song, I think, is Dominic the Christmas Donkey. You know that song? Wow! Jingy dig jing. Did not expect that. Oh yeah. Well, you know the Italian Christmas Donkey. You know? Sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's great that he now loves the Johnny Mathis record, and he'll eventually probably like whatever artists. Chris, you know, if, if he goes that route, likes that right. stuff. You know. But it's nice that it, it carries on. And and you're right. You do build your own traditions eventually, but it's so wonderful that I can 
hold this record. I know it sounds yeah. so goofy, you know, but it, it means a lot to me. Cool. Well, Joe Adranya, a pleasure. Thanks for coming over. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Joe. Now, I want to briefly talk about the Molly Birch Christmas album by Molly Birch. It's the third album from the indie singer-songwriter, and it adds a few useful things to her catalog. Her songs usually sound like they're telling her story, even if they aren't. Because of that, it's nice to have an album of holiday covers, with two new songs, so that it's clearly and specifically not about her. She's making it pretty clear that the I in Wham's Last Christmas isn't her by giving actor and comedian friends John Early and Kate Berlant the space and license to lay a conversation over the song as one friend tries to coax another out of a broken heart. It adds a playful level to the song and to Birch's work, something else she can use. Birch doesn't rethink the song she chose, but she makes some interesting choices with them. She adds children's voices to All Be Home for Christmas, which gives the otherwise bleak song a little much-needed lightness. But she only has them appear a few times so that the song doesn't become too cutesy. She also chooses some cool songs. Dolly Parton's Hard Candy Christmas is starting to get more attention each Christmas, but it's not played out yet, and her version works well, as does her cover of the Emotions' heartbreaking What Do the Lonely Do at Christmas. She also sings the Mama and the Papa's Snow Queen of Texas, since she lives in Austin. And even though it's not strictly a Christmas or New Year's song, it sounds fresh enough to earn a place on the album. Birch's albums have foregrounded her songwriting, and the news on her Christmas album is that it draws attention to her as a singer. She relates to these songs first as a singer, and the range of genres she touches on gives us clues as to where she comes from musically some of which aren't obvious in the song she writes. It's a lovely, fresh Christmas album that shows some great instincts. She clearly heard the same theatricality in Last Christmas that Emma Thompson and Paul Feig did when they decided to launch a movie from the song. From the Molly Birch Christmas album, this is Last Christmas. Hello? Hey, Kate, what's up? It's John. Oh, hey, John. What's wrong? You sound sad. Oh, I just always get a little down this time of year, that's all. You're still thinking about that guy? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, I have just a thing. Come over. We're having an incredible Christmas. Me, Molly, a bunch of our friends and family. Okay, I'll try. I, I really will. Look, I'll let you do it, but really, really consider it, okay? I do love this time of year. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Birch Christmas album is on sale now, and the Junior League's Adventureland is available on Bandcamp. Thanks to Joe Adranya for the time and the talk. You can find him on Facebook at the Junior League, Junior abbreviated to JR, and you can find me at 12 Songs of Christmas.
Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't done so yet, I hope you'll subscribe to 12 Songs at Apple Music, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. And if you can, leave a review. That will help others find out about 12 Songs. We'll finish today with one more from the Junior League's Adventureland. This is Falling in Love. Talk to you next week.